1: The lives of organisms in an ecosystem are intimately intertwined. When an entire forest is chopped down, the ripples from that destruction can end in new diseases being introduced into humanity. Vampires, a podcast about disease, science, and blood sucking insects. A member of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm Raven Forrest for your host. Before we get started with anything, I have a big announcement like the biggest announcement that I've ever made on the show so far. I'm going to be working on a PBS documentary as a production assistant. My boss, Emily Grassley of Brain Scoop fame, is hosting a three-hour series on paleontology and natural history, and we're going out to start filming next month. At the same time, Raquel is going to be proposing her PhD thesis, so she's probably going to be busier than I am. What all of this means for tiny vampires is a short three-month hiatus, so this is going to be our last episode until September. Alright, on to the topic for this month. It takes us on quite a roller coaster from satellite imagery to biogeochemistry. We were asked, what is the connection between disease and deforestation? It's a complicated question, but a really interesting one. Let's start out with why deforestation happens in the first place. It's the permanent destruction of a forest, and its main causes are, one, wanting to convert the forest to another use, like farming or cattle grazing or building a town. And two is to sell the wood. While it happens everywhere, tropical forests are being hit the hardest. There's been a lot of news about the problems caused by deforestation, including ruining water quality, the loss of plants, animal, and fungi, causing soil erosion, and disrupting native peoples who live on that land. But the issue that we're here to talk about today is the connection between deforestation and emerging infectious diseases. These are diseases that are caused by pathogens that were either not previously known or that they weren't known to cause disease. A great example of this is Zika. We've known about Zika for a while but it wasn't really having much of an effect on the people that it infected until it mutated when it jumped to Brazil and became the disease that we know today. There are certain things that make an area more likely to produce a new disease. The first is that it has a lot of different microbes of different sorts. If you have five dogs in one yard and 50 dogs in another yard, it's just a higher chance that you're going to get bit in Yard with 50 dogs. Second is the number of hosts available to those pathogens and how vulnerable they are. If a virus normally infects bats, it's more likely to jump from a bat to a monkey than it would be to jump from a bat to a snail. And third is the level of intimacy at which the microbe interacts with the host. If a hunter is skinning a gorilla and cuts himself, it's more likely that that microbe will jump from the gorilla to him than if he just got the blood on his hands. And it's even more likely the more often he's doing this. These three principles are used by disease geographers, or people who study how diseases and locations interact with each other, to determine which locations in the world are the most likely to produce a new human pathogen. When you combine the three, you see that the tropics are the most likely place. There are a lot of different types of microbes. There are a lot of different types of animals that they have the chance to infect. And, because of things like hunting, road building, and deforestation, humans are in a much more intimate contact with these microbes than they ever were before. These are just principles, though. So how do we look and actually see if they're true? Well, we take a look at the diseases that have most recently emerged and see if we find a pattern, which is what Morris et al. was doing back in 2016 when they wrote the paper Deforestation-Driven Food Web Collapse Linked to Emerging Tropical Infectious Disease, Mycobacterial ulcerans. Mycobacteria ulcerans is a type of bacteria that causes a particular type of ulcer, called a Boruli ulcer. The bacteria infects the skin and sometimes gets as deep as the bone. It disfigures the patient mostly on the legs and arms. It does this by producing a toxin that eats away at the tissue and keeps the immune system in check. Because of this toxin, it's actually pretty painless at first, which makes people wait way too long to get treatment, which is a combination of antibiotics. If the patient goes too long without treatment, they'll sometimes need skin grafts and even whole limb amputations. It can also lead to other issues, like skin cancer and something called limb contracture, which is when the limb begins to heal after treatment and the scar tissue fuses the joint of the limb into one position. As of right now, we don't know how people catch it, so there's no way for us to prevent it. Like most emerging diseases, it's pretty rare. Only 2,713 cases were reported globally last year. Morris's study was done in French Guiana, down in South America, but the bacteria is known to infect people in 33 countries in Africa, the Americas, Asia, and the Western Pacific. So, if we don't know how people catch it, the only way to study it is to figure out where it is in the environment and then look to see if we can't make out what makes the population of the bacteria explode. So half of this work was already done by the time Morris's team got there. They knew that it infects animals that are living in fresh water, including invertebrates like aquatic insects and fish. They wanted to know if the principles that we talked about earlier held true. They did this by looking at three different things. One, How does deforestation mess with the freshwater food web, if at all? Two, which animals are actually carrying the bacteria? And three, does deforestation impact the number of bacteria in the environment? So first thing first, they needed to figure out where their study sites were going to be located. To do this, they used satellite maps to find locations in the forest so that they could see what the system normally looks like, and areas of deforestation, so that they could see what the effects of the deforestation was. Like I said before, deforestation completely changes the entire ecosystem, so they needed to study the entire ecosystem. One way to do this is by sorting out what the food web is. Basically, who's eating who. Before, ecologists would just capture the animals and then look to see what was inside of their stomach. But for a lot of reasons, this doesn't always work. So they needed a more reliable method. Enter stable isotope analysis. It sounds complicated, but it's based on a very simple fact. Cells inside of living things don't want to do any more work than they have to. The word isotope probably conjures up images of radioactive waste, but actually they're all around us. All an isotope is, is an atom that has more neutrons than usual. That has more neutrons than usual. Atoms are made up of protons and neutrons, which make up the middle bit, and electrons that fly around the outside. Protons have a positive charge, and electrons have a negative one. And as their name suggests, neutrons have no charge at all. So when a carbon atom has seven neutrons instead of the normal six, it doesn't actually change anything about how the atom functions in a chemical sort of way. The only difference is is that it's a little bit heavier. This carbon atom would be called Carbon 13, because it has six protons, which is what makes it a carbon, and seven neutrons. Add them together and you get 13. This is the same deal with nitrogen, which is another isotope that is commonly used in these sorts of studies. They are called stable isotopes because they're pretty happy with just one extra neutron. If they have too many, then their stability breaks down, and the atom starts tearing itself apart. When that happens, that is what radioactivity is. Out there in the world, almost all carbon atoms are carbon-12, and almost all nitrogen atoms are nitrogen-14, but there are some carbon-13s and some nitrogen-15 oddballs out there. All of the carbon and nitrogen animals get is from the food that they eat. Whereas plants and other photosynthesizers, things like algae, get it from their environment. Photosynthesizers are lazy, and they would rather use the lighter version of carbon and nitrogen, but some are better at kicking out these heavier ones than others. This is very consistently true. So much so, that a certain type of algae let's call it algae A, will always have a certain percentage of carbon-13 in it, guaranteed. And algae B will always have a different percentage of carbon-13 because it's just naturally better or worse at kicking out these heavier atoms. What makes this cool is that we can follow this pattern all the way up the food web. If a bug living in the water eats only algae A, it will have the exact same percentage of carbon-13 in its body as algae A does. If a fish eats only that bug, it will also have the exact same percentage, and so on. Nitrogen isotopes tell us something a little different. All of the different types of algae are going to have exactly the same percentage of the heavier nitrogen atoms in their tissues. But the bugs that eat the algae will have 3% higher heavy nitrogen, and the fish that eats only that kind of bug will have 3% more than that. In this way, we can see who are grazers, because they have a very low nitrogen 15 level, and who are top predators, because they're going to have the highest nitrogen-15 level in the entire ecosystem. This holds true even for people. If you do an isotope analysis on a vegan, you'll see that their nitrogen-15 levels are much lower than a person who eats meat. So, by taking both the carbon isotopes and the nitrogen isotopes, From all of the animals living in this freshwater ecosystem, Morris and their team could build a food web that shows us who is eating who. Then they used a genetic technique that we've talked about before in previous episodes called PCR to see who in the ecosystem was infected with this mycobacteria that causes such a horrible disease. And then they compared the different sites. They found the animals who were low in the food chain had the highest load of bacteria. In their sites in the undisturbed forest, these animals had a lot of predators, and that kept their numbers in check. So, the freshwater ecosystem had relatively low mycobacteria levels. In the deforested area, the food web had completely collapsed. There were very few predators, if any, so the population of these grazers was very high, meaning that the mycobacteria was also very high. As good as this study was, this is just one example. Other emerging diseases also need to be studied to see if this pattern holds true or not. But for now, it looks like deforestation collapses an ecosystem, destabilizing it, which then allows for a disease to flourish. In this situation, a deforested area packs two punches. Not only does it increase the amount of pathogens in the environment, but it also increases the number of people who could be exposed to it because the people often start towns and farms on this newly cleared land. Morris's work was funded by the French National Academy of Research, so a big thanks to the French taxpayers for this one. There's a lot to be said about deforestation, and we just scratched the surface. There are issues that are caused by deforestation that lead to their own health risks, like hunting bushmeat, displacing animals, and exposing people to new vectors that would normally be biting animals. But since they're gone, they're now forced to bite people. Okay, so that's it for today. Uh, And actually, that's it for us until September. But I'll be posting a lot on social media whenever I can, so you can see me there. The Agora announcement this month is Agora's Intelligent Speech Conference in New York City on the 29th of June. I personally won't be there because I'll be at a dinosaur dig site in Montana or something, but a lot of your favorite podcasters will be there. So when you order your tickets at intelligentspeechconference.com and use the code W2W, you'll get a 5% discount. September's topic is going to be about Chagas disease and what its range is here in the U.S., If you liked learning about a new disease today, then you're going to really love that episode that's coming up. So I'll see you when I get back. Until then, tell a coworker how amazing it is that we can track emerging diseases by figuring out what aquatic insects ate for breakfast. And if we can figure that out, then maybe we can figure out how to prevent deforestation in the first place.